0: If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 8, 27 through 38 is where we're going to be today, continuing on in your series in the Gospel of Mark. And we had the option today uh, when we were planning the commissioning service for me to just bring another message, kind of a standalone commissioning message. But as I spoke with Pastor Todd, I realized that God has sovereignly uh, worked even the details of this day and where you guys are at in a study of Scripture so that the text that we are at is perfect. I mean, completely perfect for not only Eric and his family and the team, but your church as well. And so Mark chapter 8, 27 is where we're going to begin today, because today is a huge day. I am super honored to be a part of it. I mean, as I I prayed there for a moment, a church like yours, just being here for a few minutes on Friday, being here this morning for the beginning of the service, uh, a church like yours doesn't have to be about sending. A church like First Family doesn't have to be about sending people out to plant churches. In fact, so many places, churches like this, where God's hand is upon them, they're about keeping, they're about building. They say, hey, this is the best thing we can do. Let's let's gather, let's build, let's get bigger and and larger and wider and all of those things. But I think what you guys have realized is for God's hand to remain upon you, you must be about God's mission. And God's mission is a sending mission. So I know as you send out Folks, today, I know God is going to bless and return. He's done that a number of times uh, in St. Louis through August Gate. Um, August Gate is a really, really funny name for a church. We, we joke and said that we planted in the neighborhood of Soulard in, in downtown St. Louis, and we said that we didn't think that the name First Baptist Soulard had that much of a ring to it. And so we called it August Gate. But the reason why is I'm from a small farming community, maybe you can relate, in southeastern Illinois, and everywhere you look in the month of August, the harvest is getting prepared for. St. Louis is the gateway city. You put those two themes together, August gate is a play on words that means harvest St. Louis. And God sent me and my wife and our core team to St. Louis to be a church that would plant more churches, that would see a harvest of souls in St. Louis. And by his grace, he has done that next week. Today's a big day for me too, because it's the last sermon I preach before we celebrate 10 years as a church, 10 years of God's faithfulness today's a big day for you as you send. Today's a big day for you guys as your commission. Today's a big day for me. And today is a big text. Our text today is the pivot point in the gospel of Mark. It's the text that the whole gospel hinges on. A few years ago at my church in St. Louis, we preached through the gospel of Mark. 51 weeks, 51 weeks in the same book, right? Whoa, we did it though. And it was amazing. We called our series, Our Christ Crucified, because the Gospel of Mark, it splits into two halves pretty neatly. Our Christ, every text leading up to this point, crucified, every text leading to the cross. Those are the two movements of the Gospel of Mark. In this text, which is a microcosm of the rest of the book, everything comes together. Who Christ is and where he is going. Who who he is is. God sent him to be on our behalf and the cross to which he would go on our behalf. And so as we celebrate this big day and we study this big text, let us pray some big prayers to our big God that he might do some big things amongst us. Can we pray? Let's pray and we'll dive into his word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. And we gather today around your word. We gather today around your work. And God, as we open your word today, we want to say to you that, God, we want to know you. God, we need to know you. So would you show yourself to us? We want to be obedient disciples of Jesus. We want to know you and love you and follow you more and more, but we need your help. And so your breathed out word, would you breathe it into our hearts? Would we not just be hearers of the word today? Would we be doers as well? We beg this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27, if you would look with me, here's what it says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? So Jesus is on his last leg of the journey to the place that the journey toward the cross will begin. He's on his way to Caesarea Philippi. At Caesarea Philippi, he will set his eyes to the cross and not look to the left or the right. But on the last leg there, he asks the question that everything hinges on. He says, who do the people, who do they, who does the culture say that I am? Now, don't miss this. The first half of Mark has been leading up to this point. Everything he's done, everything he said, everything that the disciples have experienced has been leading up to this one question. Who do they say that I am? Verse 28, and they told him John the Baptist. And others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. In response to Jesus' question, his disciples responded with three answers. Here's who the people, here's the consensus of what people think about you. They think you're John the Baptist. Some of them are late to the party, right? John the Baptist was alive for a good part of Jesus' ministry. How does that work? Some say, hey, you're Elijah. You're one of these, this prophet that we've, we've heard about that would be the forerunner, another Elijah coming like the first. Others believe that you're one of the other prophets. These people that they mention are people from their past, even recent past, people they had categories for, people they could wrap their experience around, their preconceived notions around. Here's the biggest thing we have to see about this response. And the first thing that I want us to see in our text, people have a stunted view of Jesus. People have a stunted view view of Jesus, the people whom Jesus was on mission to, the people to whom Jesus would send his disciples as missionaries, they had a low and incomplete, a stunted view of Jesus. Now, here's what may be a Captain Obvious moment for you, but not much has changed today, right? Not much has changed in your neighborhoods, not much has changed in your school district, not much has changed in your work environment and in your communities People still have a stunted view of Jesus. The people to whom Jesus is still on mission to. The people to whom Jesus is still sending his His disciples as missionaries. They have a stunted view of who he is. And one of the main jobs of his disciples, one of our main roles in this world, of every follower of Jesus, is to enlarge that view. Is to clarify that view. Is to fill in and fill up that view with truth and reality. I had the privilege yesterday of spending a good part of the day in a beautiful community uh, just, just a distance from here called Adel, Iowa. Anybody love Adel, Iowa in the room? You guys need to love Adel, Iowa, right? I had to ask Erica, make sure I'm saying this right. It's Adel, right? Because I sound super redneck when I say that. And I am a redneck, and so it starts coming out when I say it, Adel, Right? <laughs> Got to spend a good part of the day in in Adel. And Eric said something yesterday as we were getting a tour of the towns in which he's planting. He said something about Adel that our good friend and state church planting leader Chase Abner says about all of Iowa. The same thing that's true about St. Louis that I've noticed for longer than the last decade. It's true of so much of the Midwest. The culture that we're working in, the culture that we are on mission to, is overchurched and under It's over-churched, but under-gospeled. We got, we got buildings. We have buildings everywhere. Even some of them have signs on them still. Like, that looks like a church. That used to be a church. That is a church, I think. But by and large, more and more, the gospel is not being preached. The gospel's not being mentioned. The Bible's not being believed. Jesus is not being followed And so we are living in a culture that is over church and under gospel. They've got categories and experiences and preconceived notions just like the audience here in our text. But all of that falls short because of a stunted, a false view of who Jesus is. The text is revealing for us this morning the call of First Family and the call of Restoration Church is to give the Des Moines area And to the ends of the earth, everywhere God calls you, a big, full picture of Jesus. So the first thing I want you to hear today, the first commission for you today, is into a culture that is over-churched and under-gospeled. We must be clear on who Jesus is. You must be clear on who he is. All these other people, all these other people have gotten it wrong. But listen, listen. Then he turns the question on them. Verse 29. He turns the question on them. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You see, even more important than what the people, the public, the world around them thought about Jesus was the disciples' response more important what, than what your lost, your unchurched, your uninterested friends and family and coworkers believe about Jesus is what you, what you Christian believe and what you say about Jesus. Peter answered him, verse 29, you are the Christ. Friends, we must be clear on who Jesus is. But check this out, all these other people got it wrong, but Peter got it right. In fact, in Matthew's gospel... We see that Jesus took a moment to encourage Peter in front of all of his co-laborers. Yes, you got it right, and I'm going to give you a nickname because you got it right. You're the rock, and upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. He reassures him, I'm going to use you and your testimony to build this church. So that's it, right? That's our lesson for the day. Don't be like all those idiots out there. Be like Peter and get it right. We can go home now. Not even close. Not even close. Look at what Jesus does next. Verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, our our call is to understand who Jesus is and tell everybody about him. Why, Why in verse 30 does he say, not yet? Don't say anything. Well, Jesus told them to tell no one because he knows that at this point, no one could fully grasp what the Christ meant until the Bloody cross and the empty tomb. He knew, you guys can't get this. Peter, you, you had the words right, but you don't know fully what this means yet because Jesus knows what's about to happen next. He hears Peter's confession and Peter's right, but there's still more work to be done. What it means for Jesus to be the Christ must be clarified. It's, it's not enough for us to have billboards that, that say, Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? we got to let the people know. So Jesus takes the opportunity to expound on Peter's confession. Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, plainly. So Christ, this term Christ, this title, according to Jesus, Very plainly, which means boldly, matter-of-factly, very clearly, not metaphorically, quite literally, Jesus said, will suffer, be rejected, he will be killed, and he will rise again. What he does, this is really cool, he combines these Old Testament themes, these Old Testament themes that they would understand very clearly. He got the Son of Man from Daniel 7, this Christological character, this heavenly character. The Son of Man mixes with the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 53, and he says, this is me. All these things, you, this is me. It's culminating in me. He looks at the dudes who've been following him for a couple years, the ones he's been pouring into and teaching about the kingdom of God, getting them ready to lead in the kingdom of God. He looks at them and says, here's my path. Here's my path, suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. And let's be clear, friends, they, at this point, didn't know they were following Jesus for those purposes. In many ways, the crowds thought they were following Jesus for all different kinds of reasons, just like the culture around us. We'll give lip service to Jesus. Y'all yeah, follow Jesus. I'll believe in Jesus. I'll pray a prayer to Jesus. I'll baptize my kids to Jesus. I'll do all these things in Jesus' name because they believe it means something different than what Jesus has in mind. Jesus just drops this gospel bomb on them plainly, lining out the sovereign plan of God before them. But they have a hard time getting it because in doing so, he drops another bomb in saying, here's my path, he's also saying to them, here's your path. Suffering, rejection, death, resurrection. If you are going to be my disciples, if you're going to follow me, here's my path. Here's your path. Verse 32, B. And Jesus, or Peter, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now, growing up in the church, wasn't saved until I was 17, but I grew up in the church, a lot of times the Bible was given to me and the characters within were presented to me as examples for me to follow. Have faith like this guy. Be bold like this guy. Tell the truth like this guy. This guy, this guy, this guy. But you know what? Peter is not one of those people that we ever want to be like most of the time. Again and again, he is presented to us in Scripture as, come on, man, don't be like this guy. Who does this? Who takes Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus? (laughs) That's not the actions of a a servant to a master. Those are the actions of a parent to a child. That's what Peter does. He pulls Jesus aside and says, now, Jesus, come on now. That's not what you really think, is it? So Peter's confession, his words were right. But now, seeing this, we've got to ask two questions. Two questions we've got to ask ourselves. Number one, does Peter's view of the Christ, does it match Jesus' view? Does his view of the Christ match Jesus' view? And secondly, does Peter's view of following the Christ match Jesus' view? What do you think? No. At this point, they don't. They didn't. How is that possible? How is it possible for him to have the right words and not the right meaning behind them? Well, have you never known someone whose words didn't match their actions? Whose lingo didn't match their lifestyle? Of course you do. You probably look at them every morning in the mirror. So what should Jesus do? Just let that lip service be enough. Yeah, you got the words right. You got the form right. Who cares about the function? You got that sticker on your, your car. Or you give that amount of money to the church. You went through the motions at one point in your life. That's good enough. Allow him to think that everything is good just because of some religious language. Well, let's check it out. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What we see here is that it wasn't just Peter who had it all wrong. He was just acting as the spokesman for the rest of the disciples. They all sent him over there, and he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. And Jesus turns around and looks and sees that they're all waiting to see what he's going to do. So he rebukes him in front of all of them. And he explains to us his definition of that which is demonic. Jesus says, this is what is demonic. This is what is satanic. Not setting our minds on things of God, but setting our th- minds on things of man. He says, that's demonic. Another way of understanding the implications of this statement, negating the things that God has revealed with our own man-made opinions. Jesus has just said, here is what the path is. And Peter says, no, 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 no. He says, that's satanic. You didn't get that from a fleshly, or from a a mind and a heart that loves me, but from a fleshly mind that is controlled by the evil one. And friends, the same thing happens in our life when Christ points us to obedience and says, this is what I've called you to, and we say, that didn't make sense to me, no, 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 Jesus, I'm gonna do it this way. See, the word rebuke means to tell someone they're believing something they shouldn't believe. In scripture, we call that Doctrine a teaching or a belief that God says we should believe. Jesus has just given his disciples a lesson in doctrine, the doctrine of the Christ. Who is the Messiah? What it is the Messiah does according to God. And Peter, in turn, pulls Jesus aside and tries to give him a lesson in doctrine. Now, Jesus, that just isn't true. And Jesus tells Peter he's become the unwitting carrier of demonic doctrine, taking what God has revealed In his word as truth and disregarding it. How often do we do that? God is telling me. I know what his word says, but God is telling me. That's garbage. That's garbage. It's demonic. So into a culture that is over churched and under gospel, we must be clear not only on who Jesus is, but what it means to follow Jesus. In a culture that is over-churched and under gospel trouts, you must be clear. Not only here's who Jesus is, but this is what it means to follow him, first family. You must be clear. It's not just enough to say Jesus is Lord, but what it means for him to be Lord, what it means to take up your cross and follow him. Peter's been, been growing and making progress, but in a moment, check this out, in a moment, he goes from you're the rock upon which I'm going to build my church to Satan. In a moment. Now, what does that tell us? Very hopefully, it tells us this. Discipleship is messy. Discipleship is messy. And if you are going to make disciples, if you are going to send missionaries and plant churches, if you're going to plant churches in a new community that is gospel-starved, you've got to remember this. Discipleship is messy. Disciplers, you need to know this, that people are going to go from getting it to not getting it that quick. Don't get discouraged. Eric and Anna, Restoration Church core team, you need to know this. People are going to go from getting it to not getting it overnight. People that you thought, man, I'm so encouraged about these folks. We could eventually, in a, in a few months, make them a small group leader and we could see them multiplying disciples. Next thing you know, they're going crazy. Ten years of that I've experienced. But the Lord is faithful. Discipleship is messy. But the Lord is the Lord of discipleship. Disciples, you need to know this. You are going to have these moments of temporary insanity after following Jesus for a while. (laughs) You just need to be like, okay, I repent and I return. Here we go, Lord. Fix me up. Now what else does this tell us? It tells us this, that a confession of Jesus' title does not a Christian make. A confession of Jesus' title does not a Christian make. And we can get stuck in all kinds of confusion about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Friends, I don't want you to be confused today. And so here's our hope. Though people can get confused, though people are gospel starved, though we can get confused about Jesus and what it means to follow him, Jesus is clear about who he is and what it means to follow him. He's clear about who he is. He is the son of man from Daniel 7. He's the reigning King. And he is the suffering servant from Isaiah. My kingdom comes through sacrifice, he says. Because Jesus is clear, we must be clear. So two things, two things. I want to challenge you today, Eric and Anna, Restoration Church, First Family, to continue to be clear on when it comes to Jesus. As you venture out into Adel, as you venture out to continue to multiply and make disciples, you must be clear about Jesus' kingship, that he is Lord. Submission to his word. Obeying him in all things. But we must also be clear about his substitutionary atonements. In the culture that we continue to take the gospel into, we can never negotiate the bloody cross. We can never hide it to make the gospel more palatable. He is our Christ crucified. But what's so beautiful is that Jesus doesn't stop with who he is. He's not just clear about who he is. He then drops all kinds of knowledge on us about what it means to follow him. Look with me now in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, to, uh, to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So not only is Jesus clear about who he is, he's clear about what it means to follow him, and so must we be. He says it takes self-denial, self-denial, taking up your cross, and following him boldly, no matter the cost. Self-denial. When's the last time you said no to yourself? When's the last time you said no to yourself? You know, we're in the habit as human beings saying yes to ourselves all the time. At least three times a day, you get hungry. Your stomach says, I want something. Literally, your flesh says, give me something. And what do we do at least three times a day? Yes, Yes, yes. When's the last time you said no to yourself? That's why God calls us to this practice of fasting. It's a practice that says, no, our flesh will not rule us. We can say no to it. Jesus says that the first prerequisite in following him, we must deny ourselves. We must take up our cross, following him to the place of death. We must follow him boldly, no matter the cost. He says the only way to life to new life, to real life, to eternal life, is death of the old life, is to do away with the old life filled with sin and self-seeking and God-rejecting that we all once lived in apart from him and to follow him, follow him on the road to the cross. Friends, I want you to hear this really clearly. We not only have to experience what the cross does for us, he tells us we must also experience what the cross does to us. Salvation is not only experiencing what the cross does for us, but experiencing what the cross does to us, that we become crucified with Christ. Jesus is beginning his journey to that cross, and he tells his disciples, and anyone who would venture to be one, he tells them, you must join me on that journey. And they will very literally join him on that journey to the cross. And he calls all of us to join as well. It's a road to death. But friends, it's a road to life. It's a road of no more excuses for less than full surrender to God. You see what Jesus does here in those last few verses? Jesus' rapid fire rattles off the answer and rebuttal to all of their questions. Four, 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 four. Do you notice that? He continues to do that over and over and over again. It's like every excuse that we would bring. Students in the room you got all kinds of reasons for not following Jesus. Well, I'm not an adult yet. I'm not responsible. I've got to live my own life. I've got to choose my own adventure. I've got to accomplish this first. I've got to live this part of high school. I've got to live this life in college. I've got to get married and have kids. Then I'll follow Jesus. And Jesus looks at all of our excuses and says, Four, four, four. No more excuses. Teenagers in the room, follow Jesus. He's leading you on the road to true and lasting eternal life. Don't wait. But the rest of us have the same excuses. We just got a a few less that we can deal with anymore. When my kids get to this age, when I get this promotion at work, when when this happens or this happens, when I reach retirement, then I'll really follow Jesus. Then I'll really obey. Then I'll really trust him with all things. Friends, the road to following Jesus is a road that begins with the cross. Self-denial, taking up the cross, boldly following him, no matter the cost. And in doing this rebuttal he does here in our text, Jesus reveals to us the deep truth of our hearts, that we all view life as an opportunity to gain the world. Every one of us. We naturally view an opportunity to gain the world, to live our lives living Giving ourselves, chasing our opportunity, and Jesus rebukes us. He tells us that we're wrong, that that's not what life is, at least not what life is anymore. And so, friends, here's the third thing I want you to hear. Into a culture that is over-churched and under-gospeled, we must be clear on what it will cost to follow Jesus. Into a culture that is over-churched and under-gospeled, we must be clear on what it will cost to follow Jesus. Jesus reaches out his hand, and he invites us off the road to death. Off the road to death. We didn't even know we were on the road to death. We thought we were on the road to life, he says. He says, I know you thought you were, but it was all backwards. He invites us off the road to death, seeking to gain the world, and on the road to real life, the road to the cross. His cross where he pays the price for us, where he bears our sin, where he takes our shame, where he pays for our guilt, where he enables us to walk each step with him. But with full disclosure, he also tells us this is what it will cost. And we must as well. But Jesus is very clear to say, but believe me, it is worth it. It is worth it. Eric and you are you about to set out on a, a journey that by God's grace will last not only 10 years that we're about to celebrate, but 15 years that First family is about to celebrate. And all the other churches that you've known that have been in longer existence, by God's grace, that it'll outlast all of them as well. And the road that you are, are on is the road that will include a lot of suffering because Jesus promised it. It's the road of the cross. But I want to let you know from the get-go, no matter what anybody says about the pain and the trouble and the discomfort of church planting, it is worth it. It is worth it. Just as they're about to celebrate 15 years of discipleship, we're gonna celebrate 10 years of discipleship and it's story after story after story of the glory of God on display in our lives. We're not worthy of it. But he he finds joy in using us And so Restoration Church and First Family Church into a culture that is over-churched and under gospel Let me charge you to do this or continue doing these things. We must be clear on who Jesus is. Every day in every conversation, we must be clear on what it means to follow him. We must be clear on what it will cost. But there's one more thing. There's one more thing we get just from the context of our text. And it's why we're doing what we're doing today in this commissioning. As I said, Jesus is beginning his journey to the cross. Once he accomplishes it, he's going to flip that journey on its head. He begins in Caesarea Philippi. He's going to travel through Galilee, through Samaria, to Judea, to Jerusalem. Where he's going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And then he says... In Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. You see that? His journey to the cross is reversed and it goes to the world. We must be clear, not only on who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, Clear on what it will cost. We must be clear on his mission. We must be clear on the mission of God. Eric, Anna, you must be clear on the mission of God that what you see here today, this room, this this worship set, this isn't the end. This is not even close to the end. This is just another kind of beginning. It never ends until you see him face to face and until that day, it is sending and sending and sending again. Until the the whole world hears, until Jesus returns to get his bride, this mission to the cross is a mission from the cross to anyone who believed. But if you're here today, and this is really, really new to you, what you must hear is that you can't go on the mission of Christ until you come to the cross. That's what this shows us. Jesus doesn't send his disciples out from Caesarea Philippi. He sends them out from Jerusalem, from the cross and the resurrection. You cannot go on the mission of God until you've experienced the cross and the empty tomb of Christ. He wants that for your church again and again. He wants that for the individual. But you must begin there. And so, all of us today, here are our questions to reflect on from his text. Have you embraced the cross of Christ? Have you embraced it? Are you embracing it today? Are you embracing what it does for you and what it does to you? What are you seeking to gain in your life right now? The world or Jesus? And finally, very very simply, are you clear? Are you clear on who Jesus is? What it means to follow him? What it will cost in his mission? We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.